Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, for this morning's message and for our time together today. If you have been here at Crosslink over the past uh, several weeks, or maybe you've been watching online in the midst of all the snow, we have been going through a sermon series entitled Fearless Faith, Fearless Faith. And in that, we've been reminded loud and clear that when you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you live by faith, as a follower of Christ, we have nothing to fear. Oswald Chambers said it this way, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says it this way, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In other words, today you don't have to live your life in fear, in panic, and in worry. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and live by faith, we can walk in confidence, we can walk in assurance, and we can walk in boldness no matter what's going on around us because we're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But the key word in that statement that I want us to focus on for a moment is the word us. Who is the us referring to? It's referring specifically to those who believed in Jesus Christ. Those who have believed in Christ, those who are living by faith. We don't have to be afraid. But that brings up a very important question. What then for the person who is not living by faith? What then for the person who is not following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? What then for the person who maybe even made a profession of faith years ago, but they're living their life in sin, they're not living for the Lord, they're not walking with him, what then for them? From Daniel chapter five, I want us to look at a very important and a very powerful and frankly very sobering picture and reminder of this. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are not living by faith, then frankly, you have every reason to be afraid. From Daniel chapter five this morning, I wanna preach to you on the subject, a time to be afraid. A time to be afraid. Most of us will agree this morning that we don't like to be afraid, and yet we all have various fears that we face in life. And so just to kind of help us understand the common human emotion of fear, I want to kind of give a little evaluation here. I want to find out what you're afraid of, all right? By a show of hands, how many of you today would honestly admit, Pastor, I'm afraid of snakes? Anybody like that? Okay, yeah, me too. I'm right there with you, all right? Anybody would say, Pastor, I'm afraid of spiders? Anybody like that? Come on, people, get over it. It's not that big of a deal. All right, how many would say, I'm afraid of heights? Okay, how many would say, you know what, there are certain social situations, awkward moments, speaking in public, that kind of thing. There are social situations that frankly cause me anxiety and a little bit of fear. Anybody like that? 
okay? Now, I probably haven't gotten to everybody, but the bottom line is we've all experienced fear. We might be afraid of the dark. We might be afraid of germs. We might be afraid of specific people. We all can experience that emotion of fear. But the truth is, many of those fears can be worked through and can be overcome. Because usually in the grand scheme of life, those fears are very minor and pose a very minor risk in our life. For example, I don't like snakes. I am afraid of snakes. And my motto, the only good snake is a dead snake. That's exactly right. And yet at the same time, if my family is in danger and there's a poisonous snake there, it's amazing with a shovel in my hand what can be done in that matter of moment, okay? My point is most of the things that we're afraid of in the grand scheme of life, pose a minor risk and therefore we can work through. But there is a fear. There is a fear that is a sobering reality for all who choose to not believe in Jesus and live by faith. And we see that in Daniel chapter five. Listen to what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this important statement about the fear of God. It says this, if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Listen to this summary statement. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The living God who sees all and knows all. The living God who sees who you are in private as well as what you profess in public. The living God who sees not only your outward action, but the thoughts and the motives and even the intents of your heart. The living God who sees and knows it all. The Bible tells us that statement. It is a, it is a terrifying thing when we fall into the hands of the living God. It is a picture of God's judgment. Can I say to you this morning, if you do not repent of your sin, if you do not believe in Jesus and follow him as Lord, then you have every reason to be afraid. We see it from Daniel chapter five. I want you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word if you're physically able. We're gonna read verses one through 17 in our time right now. Then we're gonna get into the context of the message and I wanna encourage you, keep your Bibles open in our time together. Throughout the points of the message, we're gonna read the rest of the chapter. Here's what the Bible says beginning in verse one. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to, give, to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, picture the scene for a moment. Massive party unlike any other. This king's wife and, and, and wives and all of his concubines. I don't wanna paint the graphic picture here, but you get an idea of what's happening at this party. Verse three. They brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse five. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. The king's face grew pale, 
and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack. Pause for a moment. Various translations translate that differently. Here's what it's saying in a nice way. The king had an accident, okay? Somebody told me after the first service, the king became a party pooper. Anyway, (laughs) and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler of the kingdom. Verse eight, all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. Verse 10. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. For there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit Knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. Verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination, insight and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 17, and we'll pause. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and this time that you've given us to come together to read and to hear your word. God, we live in a culture right now where we are hearing so many voices and so many messages. It is so difficult in the midst of it all to oftentimes understand what really is the truth. God, I pray today that all those voices and all those messages would be put out of our mind, would be put out of our eyes, that today the only message that we would hear would be yours that the only voice that we hear would be yours as you through the Holy Spirit would speak to us. God, would you speak in such a way that where conviction is needed, that you would speak it. Where change is needed, that you would bring it. For the glory and in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. A time to be afraid. Today in Daniel chapter five, as we've read this passage of scripture together, I'm reminded that there are many times that we in scripture have a word of great encouragement, that we leave hearing that word with being uplifted and being excited perhaps and being overjoyed at what we've heard. But I'm also reminded that it is oftentimes 
the message that is the hardest to hear, which is also that we need the most. I don't know about you, but uh, there've been a few times in my life I've had to take medicine. Rarely does a medicine taste good to me. I was thinking about this earlier this week as I remember being in about fourth grade and some friends and I were with a group of adult leaders from our school and they were taking us to a state competition. We were driving four hours away from our, our home and I remember being in this vehicle and I remember suddenly feeling sick to my stomach. And I don't know if I was car sick or if I was nervous about the competition. I don't know. All I know is that I did not feel well. And I began to explain to the, to the leaders there, I don't feel good. And so they pulled over, they stopped at a gas station. The man in the vehicle went inside and he came out with two things. He came out with a Sprite and he came out with a whole bottle of Pepto-Bismol. And I'll never forget as a young child, him looking at me and saying, Matt, just take a sip of this, then drink the Sprite, you'll be fine. And I don't remember ever before having Pepto-Bismol before, and this is not a commercial for them. I've not paid for it, I promise. But I remember opening that Pepto-Bismol and I remember taking a sip and it probably being the most disgusting thing I'd ever drank in my life. The taste of it was horrible. The texture of it was horrible and it was just bad. 30 minutes later, I'm still not feeling good. And so I tell them, they say, drink another sip, you'll be just fine. And, but I remember by the time we got to where we were going, I was fine. I, their symptoms are gone. I felt better about it. And, and what, give that illustration to say, there are times when, frankly, what we need is difficult to hear. It's difficult to process. We may not like the taste. We may, like not, may not like the texture, but it's exactly what we need to hear because in hearing it and responding to it, God can bring about a work of healing and a work of life and a work of peace in our hearts and lives today. In Daniel chapter five, we have that kind of message. Now, let me give some context for what's happening here in this moment. We're introduced in Daniel chapter five to a king by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar most likely was the grandson of a king that we've been studying all throughout Daniel so far, the king Nebuchadnezzar. Now, some people will look at this and say, well, wait a second. It said that Nebuchadnezzar was the father, but the word that's used here was often used of an ancestor. We know historically today that Nebuchadnezzar lived. He was the king of Babylon. He reigned for 45 years. And after Nebuchadnezzar died, there were a series of kings that ruled and reigned for short periods in time because there was all sorts of competition. One guy would come to the throne, somebody would kill him, take his throne, and the next guy would kill him, take his throne. And finally, we come to Belshazzar. Belshazzar only reigned and ruled as king for two years. We know hardly anything about his kingdom except for this incredible story about the handwriting on the wall. And even so today, when you hear the expression, the writings on the wall, it's a statement of finality. So who is this guy? Belshazzar, I believe historically, is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was that king who had experienced incredible blessings from God. We've been studying him all throughout this book. Nebuchadnezzar had wealth, he had power, he had prestige, he had influence, he was the most powerful man in the world in his day. And yet the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar refused to humble himself before God. If you remember the text from last week, if you missed it, go listen online. Daniel chapter four, God gives a warning to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, turn from your sins, repent of your sins or else I'm gonna humble you or else you're gonna be removed from your palace. You're gonna go live in the pasture. You're gonna lose your mind. You're gonna live like cattle, eating the grass of the field. The dew is going to drench your back. Your hair is gonna grow like the feathers of a bird. Your claws like that of an animal. And the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter four, that's exactly what happened. He refused to repent of his sins. He refused to humble himself. And as a result of that, he ended up separated from all of his family, separated from his kingdom, separated from it all. And finally, in that place of humility, he humbled himself and looked to God. 
In fact, in Daniel chapter four, the Bible tells us something so interesting at the end of that chapter. It declares to us that Nebuchadnezzar looked through his kingdom in Daniel chapter four and listen to what he said as he makes this decree of how the people should worship God. He says this in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, now I praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar is now praising God. Well, Daniel chapter five, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Belshazzar is now the king. And Belshazzar one night decides to throw a party for himself. His motto in life is, it's my party and I'll do what I want to, okay? That's his motto. Literally, he's living for himself. When the Bible says that he drank wine in the presence of all the people, it literally is meaning he was the center of attention. He threw this party for himself. He's got his wives there. He's got all of his girlfriends there. You can imagine the things that are happening in this moment. He's got the wine is flowing. Everybody's excited. There's laughter. There's music. There's joy. Everything is great. And in the midst of the party, he does something interesting. He looks over at his guards and he says, hey, go to the trophy case. Go find the vessels from Jerusalem that were in the Jewish temple that they used to worship their God. Yeah, take those old vessels. We know their God is worthless. We know he's dead or else he wouldn't allow them to be captured. Bring those vessels here and we're gonna drink out of them. So that's what happens. They bring these vessels that were meant to worship God and the Bible says he puts wine in those vessels and he begins to drink. Man, he is living it up. They're having a good old time. This is a, the party of all parties. When suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belshazzar looks over and he sees the hand of a man appear on the wall. This is no hallucination. This is no dream. This is no vision. He sees a hand of a man appear and the hand begins writing on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekeluferson. And in that moment, the party's over. In that moment, when he sees the handwriting on the wall, in that moment, the music stops, the laughter stops, the drunkenness stops, the nakedness stops. In that moment, the party is over. Can please understand loud and clear this morning? If you are living like there is no God, at a time when you least expect it, God will crash your party. You might enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but I assure you it will only be for a season and there will come a time when all the music and all the laughter and all the fun and games will be over because the party will be crashed. And that's exactly what happens in Daniel chapter five. Belshazzar panics. His face grows pale. His knees begin to knock. He soils his garments. And he begins to bring in the professionals. Bringing all the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the sorcerers, everybody, anybody who can. Somebody please interpret, what in the world does the writing say? And man, these guys are worse than meteorologists. They can't get it right any part of the time, okay? They are of no help. They have no idea what, this, what these words mean. The queen comes in. I believe this is most likely his mother and the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. The queen comes in and says, hey, settle down. It's okay. Don't let your thoughts alarm you. It's not that bad. There's a guy in the kingdom. He used to serve your grandfather. His name is Daniel. He was given the name Belteshazzar. And within him is a spirit of the gods. What she didn't realize that the spirit within him was the spirit of the living God. But he can interpret your dream. He can tell you what this means. Don't panic. Everybody stay calm. Daniel comes in. 
The king, Belshazzar, looks at him, hey, listen, there, there, there's this writing on the wall and this is what's happening. My, my guys can't help me. And, and Daniel, can you imagine the scene as Daniel walks into the room? Everything that's been happening in the dark corners of that banquet hall is now being brought into the light. It's amazing how when people are living it up, nobody wants a man of God around, but in the moment of crisis, he's the first to call. Daniel comes into the scene. He walks in. He sees people passed out drunk over in the corners. He, he sees people still putting their garments back on. He looks at the tables and he sees those old vessels that were intended to worship God sitting on the table, still half filled with wine. Hey, Daniel, if you interpret this, I'm gonna give you robes and rings and I'm gonna make you third in charge of the land. Daniel says, I don't want your stuff. But I'll give you the interpretation. What I want you to see is that Belshazzar in all of his power was completely terrified. And he tells us that for all who refuse to repent of our sin, there is a time to be afraid. I want you to see from Daniel chapter five, five moments when we should be afraid. Number one, when should you be afraid? First and foremost, when you reject the truth of God. When you reject the truth of God, you have every right and reason to be afraid. Listen to what the text says in verse 18. O king, listen to what Daniel says. The most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished he killed, whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, whomever he wished he humbled. Listen. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was, the wild, was like the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, I think he's speaking of an ancestor here, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. What is sobering about the picture of Belshazzar in this moment is this. He knew better. Belshazzar, Belshazzar was not ignorant of the living God of heaven. He was not ignorant of the ways of the living God of heaven. He was not ignorant of the truth that it is God who is in control and has all power and all authority. Why was he not ignorant? Because of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was that king who had lived and reigned, frankly, for 45 years, most of that time living for himself. He said, hey, look at my power. Look at my great army. Look at my security. Babylon, man, they had this massive walls that everybody said was impenetrable. Look at my security. They had water galore. The Euphrates River flowed right into the city of Babylon. Scholars believe that they had 20 years worth of food and supplies stored in their kingdom just in case of a rainy day. Look at my wealth. Look at all my gold and my silver and bronze. Look at my control. We've got the peoples of all the world. Even the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed and the God that they worship has been made light of. For years and years, Nebuchadnezzar lived, frankly, as if he was God. But once God humbled him, Nebuchadnezzar declared loud and clear, there is no God like the living God of heaven. 
There is no God like the God of the Jews. There is no God like the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he can interpret dreams, because he can deliver from the fiery furnace, because he is the one who rises, makes kingdoms rise and makes kingdoms fall. He's the one that brings people to positions and he's the one who removes them. He's the one who controls the seasons. He's the one who controls the times. He's the one who can work all miracles. He is the living God of heaven and all the peoples of the earth should praise him. Nebuchadnezzar had declared these things. Here comes Belshazzar, I believe his grandson, and what does he do? Completely rejects it. He ignores what his grandfather had learned. He ignores what his grandfather had declared, and in doing so, he rejects the truth. When you reject the truth of God, you have every reason to be afraid. But hey, what could Belshazzar possibly learn from his old granddad? I mean, his granddad's old ancient and That was truth for his day, but we young people, we know better. Our new ways and our new knowledge and our new philosophies, we we got more science on our on our on our you know on our stance, and we've got more truth on our stance, and so we know better than the guys used to know back in the day. That would never happen in our culture, right? Belshazzar rejects in arrogance. He rejects the things that his own grandfather had learned in a hard way. He dismissed it all. But I want to remind us loud and clear that we learn from his life. When you reject the truth of God, you have every reason to be afraid. Fact of the matter is today, Belshazzar grew up in, a, in an environment where he heard about the living God of heaven. You may have grown up in a Christian home today, but you may not have. You may have never heard the gospel. You may have never been brought to church. You may have never attended a Sunday school class. But I'm telling you here today that God has revealed his truth to all mankind in such a way that every single one of us are without excuse. The Bible tells us that God has revealed himself in three primary ways to all mankind. Number one, God has revealed himself to all mankind in our conscience. Romans chapter one says it this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. That's why you can go to various nations of the world and you can find them longing for an understanding of who is this creator and who is this God who made the heavens and the earth. Why? Because it's evident within them in their conscience. God has revealed himself not only in our conscience, but he's revealed himself through creation. Romans chapter one, verse 20 continues on. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. All creation declares the fact that there is a living, almighty, all-powerful God to which we will give an account. We know that full well. Here in Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley, it is beautiful. When you look at the mountains or you hike up a mountain and you look into the heavens and you begin to see the landscape as far as the eye can see, it beckons within us and calling and an understanding that there is a creator who created these things. But now as God revealed himself in our conscience and creation, he has ultimately revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter two says it this way, for in him, in Jesus All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of God has been revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody says, man, I just wish I knew what God looked like. I wish I knew what he did. I I wish I knew what he was like. Here's what you do. Study the life of Jesus Christ because the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form in Jesus Christ. Which brings up a question. 
Belshazzar was responsible for the truth that he knew and in the same way, we are responsible for the truth that we know. Who is that truth? It is Jesus. Did not Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse six, I am the way, I am the what? Truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. John 3, verses 16 and 18 says it this way. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Verse 18 continues on. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Belshazzar knew the truth. Belshazzar heard the truth. He heard his grandfather talk about it. He heard the people before him talk about it. He knew the incredible lesson that his grandfather had learned. And yet when given the opportunity, here's what he did. He rejected it all. I'm gonna live for myself. I'm gonna do what I want. I'm gonna trust my ways, my knowledge, my desires, and not that of God. Friend, I want you to know this morning, when we reject the truth of God, we have every reason to be afraid. Secondly, when should I be afraid? When we reject the truth of God. Secondly, when should I be afraid? When you pursue your own glory. Notice the statement in verse 23. The Bible tells us that Daniel looks at him and said, Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart even though you knew all this but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have exalted yourself. The word used here for exalt literally means to boast, to elevate, and to lift oneself above another. In other words, here's Belshazzar. He is a young man. He is a young ruler He has his whole life in front of him. He's now been ruling for about two years. He has the greatest of the wealth of the world. He has peoples from every nation of the world in his kingdom. He has an impenetrable wall in Babylon. He has supplies. He has women. He has wine. He has everything his heart desires. But man, that heart desires will get you in trouble, won't they? Because here's what it led him to. It led him to saying, I'm the boss. I'm in control. I, I am my own Lord. I am my own God. It led him to a place where, frankly, he was pursuing his own glory. Oh, there's nothing to fear. I've got power, wealth, and security. What I want When I want it, how I want it, I can do it all and there will be no repercussions. But I want to remind you this morning, the Bible tells us in James chapter four, verse six, that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What we see from Belshazzar, frankly, is that he was filled with pride, much like his grandfather had been before he was humbled. It's not just that he's exalting himself. Daniel calls it out, doesn't he? You've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. In other words, he's saying, Belshazzar, you're living your life for your glory, for your name, for what you want. You're putting yourself above God. And friend, I wanna remind us this morning, God will share his glory with no one. You know why? Because all of us, Belshazzar, even Daniel, Me, you, all mankind, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. 
Only God is holy and righteous and true. Only God is perfect and just in all things. Only God should receive glory. Belshazzar instead exalted himself against God himself. Friend, I want to remind us this morning, even for those of us who are believers here today, our life, our actions, our decisions, all of it should be lived for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to Jesus. It's not about ourselves. It's not about our name. It's not about our fame. It's not about our power. It's not about our position. It's not about our wealth. It's not about our security. It's not even about our rights. It's for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, believer, do all to the glory of God. The world clearly lives for self, self-pleasure, selfishness, self-love, and sadly, even many believers today are living in a way that promotes themselves. Anytime believers, we get into that mindset of saying, I'm right and you're wrong. My position's right and yours is ridiculous. Anytime we're more concerned about our being right than we are the glory of God, something is wrong. The political divide, for example, in our culture today has gotten so many riled up that we have forgotten and lost sight of who and what we're to be living for. I think in our culture today, Satan, frankly, is having a grand time because the followers of Jesus are largely divided, largely distracted, and largely disparaging of others when we should be devoted to Jesus alone and determined to do all that we can to bring others to him. The Bible tells us in James chapter three, verse 16, this simple statement, where selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. And then he tells us where it came from. That selfish ambition is earthly, natural, and demonic. So how do we live the day in a way that brings glory to God? Here's what we do. With every action, with every decision, with every post, hello, we pause and consider Does this bring glory to Jesus? Many of us are more concerned about us being right and our voice being heard than we are bringing glory and honor to Jesus. And it's causing a major black eye on the church today. Whose glory are we really living for? Belshazzar refused to live for the glory of God. He exalted himself, his rights, his power, his name, his fame, And Daniel says, you've exalted yourself against the God of heaven. There's a third time we should be afraid, and that is this. We should be afraid when we mistreat the sacred things of God. I want to encourage you, think about these points and pause for a moment and ask, is this true of me? Am I rejecting the truth of God? Am I living for my own glory? Third, Am I mistreating the sacred things of God? Notice verse 23 goes on. You've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they've brought out the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. Please understand this morning that most people in their life don't set out intentionally to mock the things of God. But frankly, in our hard-heartedness and sin, it can be very easy to do this. 
O.S. Hawkins wrote a book about the book of Daniel that I've been reading along with the sermon series, and he says this. He says, it kind of gives us a digression. He says, Belshazzar lost all sense of remembrance of the truth of God. He lost all sense of reality, assuming that he could never be destroyed, which led into all sense of restraint, and this resulted in a loss of respect for anything that was considered sacred. Please understand this morning. If we fail to acknowledge God, we will live for ourselves, and if we're living for ourselves, there is no depth of depravity that we are incapable of. So, hey, guards, go to the trophy case, get out these vessels, and I want you to bring them here. We're gonna drink out of them. We're gonna make them a part of the, a part of the party. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, what's the big deal, right? It's hard for us to grasp the big deal in this moment because we don't have any gold and bronze and silver cups that we typically drink out of, I would imagine. Nor do we have them that are associated with our worship, but it was a huge deal. And the reason why it was a big deal was because all the way back in 2 Chronicles chapter four, as God has given specific instructions about Solomon's temple and the way that they're gonna worship God, the Bible tells that God gave direct instructions about the vessels, about the cups, about the bowls, about the utensils. And the Bible says that God called them holy. It means that they were set apart by God and they were set apart for God. These vessels were to be a part specifically of their worship before God. They were meant to be a vessel of worship for him. When Belshazzar takes these vessels meant to worship the living God of heaven and uses them as a means of his drunkenness, it's like he's taking his thumb and just shoving it in the face of God. It's like he's pointing in God's chest saying, I don't care about you. I don't care about your existence. I don't care about your worship. I don't care about what you've called holy. I don't care what you've declared at all. I'll do what I want to. So, oh, pastor, that would never happen. We ain't got any gold vessels around here. It wasn't about the gold vessels. It was about what God had declared holy. And frankly, in our culture today, even in the church, it can be very easy for us to mistreat the things that God has declared sacred and holy. Let me give three examples. Number one, the example of marriage. The example of marriage. Marriage is considered holy and set apart by God, which is why we call it holy matrimony. Literally in the context of marriage, when a biological man marries a biological woman, they are entering into a sacred covenant relationship. One in which is described in Ephesians chapter five, verse 31, it says this way, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're set apart by God for one another. Oh, well, I didn't get married by a pastor. It doesn't matter. When you enter that covenant relationship, it is vowed by God. It is brought together as sacred and holy. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse four, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Why is this so important? Because marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship with his church. We're the bride, and he's the groom. And so God says what? It's sacred, it's holy, it is set apart. So I wanna ask you a question, husbands and wives. Are you mistreating that which God has called sacred and holy? Second illustration. What about the illustration of our body? As a believer in Jesus Christ, our body is considered holy and set apart to God. 
Say, oh, pastor, well, I've never drank wine out of one of those temple vessels, but I wanna ask you, what are you doing with your body? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says it this way, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God, where? In your body. The direct context of this in 1 Corinthians is dealing specifically with sexual sin. And I wanna remind us this morning, in 2021, right here, right now, this simple reality, any sexual act outside of the sacred marriage relationship between a man and a woman is a sin against God. Any sexual act outside of the context of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is a sin against a holy God. Someone says, oh, that's ancient. No, that's God. That's his word. Oh, but pastor, we're, we're, we're in our 50s. We know how this thing worked. Our, our first spouse and pastor, we're just, we're just living together. It's not the big of a deal. It doesn't matter if you're 15, if you're 55 or 155. Any sexual relationship out of the context of marriage is a sin against God. God said it. He said it loud and clear. And so for that reason, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says it this way. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Question, how are you treating your body? What are you watching? What are you hearing? What are you letting your mind feast on? Where are your feet taking you? Are you mistreating the sacred things of God? The third illustration I would think of is this. It's simply the illustration of God's word. It's holy, it's sacred, it's set apart. That's the reason why we call it the Holy Bible. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter three. He says, literally, from childhood you have known what? The sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Are you making light of God's word or are you taking it in completely? Are you submitting yourself to God's word in its entirety or are you dismissing and denying the parts that don't condone what you're doing. Oh, I would never drink out of a vessel that was used for worship. It's easy to say that. The bigger question is, what are we doing with our lives? There are other things that God has declared sacred, but I think if you look at those three illustrations, God's word, what we're doing with our body, how we're viewing and respecting marriage, it tells us a great deal about our culture. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? He said, if you love me, come to church on Sundays. No, that's not what he said. If you love me, sing out loud and clap. No, that's not what he said either. If you love me, give to the offering plate. Everything will be, no, that's not what he said. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Are we mistreating the sacred things of God? Fourth, when should I be afraid? When you worship worthless things. Verse 23. You've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. They've brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of gold and of silver, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. When we choose to worship worthless things, we have every reason to be afraid. Here's the bottom line. 
we're all worshiping something. We can either worship Jesus Christ as the Lord of our life and worship him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, or frankly, we'll worship anything else. Many of us settle for a worship that's like Belshazzar's. Belshazzar looked at all of his blessings. I mean, think of all the gold and all the silver and all the bronze and all the wealth. I mean, he had it all. He was so consumed by the blessings that he failed to focus and give worship and honor to the one who had given those blessings. And this led him to, frankly, empty pursuit after empty pursuit. That's why it didn't matter how many nations they conquered. It wasn't enough. It didn't matter how powerful his army was. It wasn't enough. It didn't matter how many thrills and experiences he had. It was never enough. And we get the height of that as he's in this banquet and and, and getting drunk wasn't enough. Being with all the women in the world wasn't enough. Hey, go get the vessels of worship from the Jewish temple. Let's show our dominance over their God and let's get drunk off of this. And guess what? Just like everything else of the world, it wasn't enough. Nothing will save your soul or satisfy the deepest need of your life apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing. Oh, well, I find my satisfaction here in in this relationship. I find my satisfaction here in this experience. I find my satisfaction here in this blessing. I find my satisfaction in these things. But I'm telling you, in the end, when all is said and done, the only thing that will save your soul and satisfy the greatest need and longing of your life is, is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Belshazzar reaches a point where, frankly, He's worshiping all these other things and he's finding time and time and time and time again and ultimately to the final conclusion, it was all in vain. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I love this statement, everything that is not eternal is worthless in eternity. Daniel's basically looking at him and saying, Belshazzar, you have worshiped worthless things that cannot see you, cannot hear you, and cannot save you. How often in our own life do we worship the almighty dollar, almighty this and that, and this experience, but it can't see us, it can't hear us, and it can't save us. We can worship so many things, but so much of it are worthless in the grand scheme of eternity. Final thing I want you to see, when should I be afraid? And I'm gonna wrap up is this. When you miss your opportunity to repent. So man, there's a writing on the wall. What in the world did it mean? Are we ever gonna get there? Well, here we go. Daniel's brought in. Daniel enters the scene. Daniel looks at the wall. He sees the four words there in Aramaic and he immediately knows the meaning. The first word was repeated twice for emphasis to make sure Belshazzar knew loud and clear this is what it means. In Aramaic, it was the word mene and then repeated mene. And he literally tells us Notice the statement, verse 25. This is the inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Tekla, Pharisee. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. What does this mean? Follow this, follow this statement for a moment. Daniel looks right into the king's eyes. 
the most powerful man in the world. This guy is so sure of himself and so arrogant that he knows, even while he's having this banquet, he knows that the enemy army of the Medes and the Persians, they're right outside the city walls. The entire time this banquet and drunkenness was going on, he knew the enemy was just on the other side, but he thought, nobody will ever get me. God will never deal with me. I'm fine. I've got this under control. I'm good. But the writing says, Mene, Mene, which basically means it's over. It's over. It's finished. And the repeating there is literally saying emphatically, I want you to know, Belshazzar, God is saying your party is over. Well, I know it's over. The music has stopped and people got their clothes back on. There's no more drinking. No, I'm telling you, Belshazzar, your life, your kingdom, your reign, you doing what you want to do, it's all over. Can I just say to you this morning, God had been so patient and long-suffering. He was merciful. He was gracious. He gave him day after day after moment after moment after opportunity after opportunity for him to be right, for him to repent of sins, to be restored. But I'm telling you, God is so patient with us. But if we continue to refuse, if we continue to reject, if we continue to not repent of our sin, there will come a day when God says, enough, it's over. Some of us in our life today need to be reminded God's lack of judgment against us so far has been an evidence of his grace giving us opportunity to repent. Tekel. Tekel was a mathematical term that referred to a scale that literally means your life has been put on the scale and you've been found deficient. What he's saying is, Belshazzar, I know that you are your own God but you are not the God. And the living God of heaven has put your life on the scale and you have been found sorely lacking and deficient. Can I just say to all of us today, there's coming a day when we stand before God, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this is the judgment. We will stand before God and give an account of our life. And many of us, we want to focus on our righteousness and our good works and our doing this and our doing that. But I'm telling you this morning, unless we have repented of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, unless we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we will be found lacking, deficient, because there's nothing we can do to change our standing before God but to believe in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, we can be forgiven, cleansed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But apart from that, we're all lacking Mene, Mene, Tekel, Euphorison, which simply was a term that means divided. And the word was used in the context of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were literally right outside the city walls. And when he says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Euphorison, here's what he's saying. He's saying, it is over. Your life is over. God's moment of grace for you, God's opportunity of grace for you, it's all over. You and your kingdom are about to be destroyed. Say, my goodness, Pastor Matt, that's a hard message. I mean, I mean, where, where, where's the encouragement? Well, can I just tell you, there is no more encouragement for Belshazzar. Next statement. Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. 
So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Did you know that historically, we know the facts today, historically we know that that very single night, the Medes and the Persians had been working overtime. The Euphrates River literally flowed into the north part of Babylon and flowed through the entirety of the city. And what they did that day is they completely rerouted the Euphrates River. And instead of coming through the walls, here's what the Medes and Persians did. They went under the channel of water and they went right into the city, conquered the city and killed Belshazzar. Where's the encouragement? There is no encouragement for Belshazzar. It's over. What's done is done. Today, Belshazzar is in eternity forever separated from God. And there's no way to undo that. But here's the encouragement. The encouragement is for us today. If we are in sin... If there are things in our life that we need to repent of and turn from, if God's been giving us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn from our sin and turn to him, here's the encouragement. The encouragement is God is looking at us today and he is saying, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The encouragement is that 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the encouragement. Here's the encouragement. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be terrified today of falling into the hands of a living God. If Jesus is the Lord of your life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 and 19 says it this way. Look at the words on the screen. How, how do we overcome that fear? Here, here, here's how it is. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love, why? Because he first loved us. What was it that casts out fear? Perfect love. What is perfect love? It is the love that God demonstrated when he sent his son Jesus to come to this fallen world to die on the cross for my sins, for your sins, as a substitute in our place. The wonderful truth today is this. We don't have to live in fear when we know Jesus and live by faith in him. But I'm telling you this morning, if we don't turn from our sin and turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have every reason to be afraid. So let me ask you a question. If you were to stand before God today in judgment, do you find yourself right now overwhelmed with gratitude for God's grace, for his forgiveness in your life? Or do you find yourself afraid and I want to tell you when you think of God's judgment today if you find yourself afraid it's because you need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus as the Lord of your life and I pray that you will can you bow your heads with me Father 
this message in many ways, it kind of has a taste to it that is hard to receive. But God, it can only be by receiving it and responding by faith that we can experience the soul-saving, life-giving joy of salvation. So God, I pray today that as we consider our end of standing before you in judgment, I pray that that reality would cause us today to respond in a way that would bring glory and honor to you. Father, none of us want to be in Belshazzar's shoes. God, you've given us all an opportunity right now to really examine and consider where we're at. You've given us all an opportunity to receive your grace and your mercy. And I pray that we would not refuse it. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.